Welcome to the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And as has become our custom, we are reading through the Aubrey Matron novels of our favourite author, Patrick O'Brien. Mike, catch us up, would you please? Where were we last week and where might we be headed to this week? Oh, be delighted. Ian, last week in Chapter 7, Jack had rejoined the squadron, but couldn't learn what the Admiral, who was sick in bed, thought about his parting company to take a prize. The Ringle took Stephen to meet Sir Joseph Blaine in London. There, Stephen presented a plan to aid Chilean independence. He also learned about Jack's likelihood of being yellowed and helped Sir Joseph capture and blackmail a Spanish intelligence head. So mm-hmm. great, great chapter. This time, the committee votes on that plan that Stephen put forward last chapter. Stephen visits Wilcom. Sophie gets an education. Jack considers his options after Stephen rejoins the squadron and O'Brien demonstrates his Latin chops here. And we lean heavily on our consulting Latinist, Karen Ruff. Thank you, Karen. Amen. So Mike, I'll say there's there's a lot to get into in this chapter. And I'm going to say, hmm, maybe even controversial. Let's see where we get to by the end of the chapter here. Now, Stephen and uh, Blaine had been celebrating a coup, a coup announced in real time as we got to the end of the previous chapter. We open this chapter with the intelligence services, especially those rivals of Sir Joseph Blaine's, respecting, envying, and generally enthusing about this latest Spanish intelligence coup. Now, after some time, the coup had paid off because the committee went almost as directly as committees could possibly go, and almost directly to an outright approval of Dr. Matrian's proposal for supporting the revolution in Chile, with the understanding that this plan was going to be conducted in private, with a vessel hired for hydrographical purposes, you know, arm's length, deniability, all that, spending no more than three quarters of what Dr. Matrian had left unspent in South America, thereby costing them minus nothing. And to begin only when everybody felt that this was proper and that the mission could be relinquished by either party with reasonable notice. So that's about as unequivocal as, I guess, hidebound establishment committees ever get. Now, this is fine. This is as close to a green light as Stephen's going to get. He had spent some time, meanwhile, in London, hanging out at the Grapes. And Mike, it's really touching that he gets reunited at this point with Sarah and Emily. We've had the story of Stephen and Bridget, and we've had a little bit with the uh, the Aubrey kids as well. It's really nice to get back with Sarah and Emily. They're helping Mrs. Broad. She's getting them to learn cooking and sewing. They've gone to the poor school. They're running errands for gentlemen staying at the Grapes and adding to their range of English dialects, the Cockney, the East London dialect. They were using their money from tips to take Stephen to see the wild beasts in the tower. And I'm not really sure what Stephen would have made a wild beast in captivity, feeding him raspberry tarts, which is another delightful little inconsequential detail. And this is this has gone over really well with Stephen so far, I think. Yeah, I I, I think he's he's loving this. You know, yeah. he's so proud of it. He's he's telling Sir Joseph about this, and he's saying, you know, you know, you should have seen how Emily thanked the keeper, you know, the keeper of these wild animals, and begged him to accept their sixpence. So, you know, here are these native girls who are now tipping, you know, part of society and everything. Now, Sir Joseph takes a little bit different view on this. He says he's heard there's some good in children, but he adds, and, and, and O'Brien writes, but even a greater example of a 
affectionate attention would not tempt me into the wild adventure of begetting any. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, so Joseph here reminds me of, you know, one of my very good friends who, whenever she sees a school bus approaching her neighborhood says, don't stop here. Don't stop here. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Sir Joseph goes on to say that Stephen being rich again, you know, should reconsider and should take a post chase, not the crowded, vile mail coach as he heads home here. He's headed for home that day. If he takes the mail coach, he's going to be arriving at Dorchester at dawn. And, you know, so just say, you know, this is no way to travel. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, wait, Stephen is rich again. Hold on. Right, the last time we right. heard his fortune stuck in Spain, right? How's he rich again? How's he got his fortune back? And then I think I realized, ah, a little bit more of the payoff of the Don Diego, you know, Spanish intelligence head blackmail coup. So, oh, by the way, I need to have my gold release. Done, done, done. No problem. No, nobody expects the Spanish redemption. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well put. <laughs> Wow. And, and, and redemption it certainly seems to be. It's, it's redeemed Stephen back into his former self of being rich, but also a bit cheap. You know, why would I spend my good money on a coach when the, you know, when the mail is perfectly fine? Huh. So he's eating a big breakfast. He's at Dorchester getting a shave. Already I'm thinking, wait, St- Stephen volunteering to get a shave? Um, he does take a chase uh, along to Wilcombe. So he arrives at Wilcombe in some style here. He's riding along Simmons Lee and he sees in the distance a woman and two children riding. And he thinks, the girl looks a lot like Bridget, but she's riding astride, not riding side saddle like a young lady, and sets out to, to one side for a second. And he does realize that the man running along next to them is Padine. And uh, he gets to walk home. He's walking in. He finds Diana still in bed. She says she had just been thinking about him. Ah. And she checks to see if he'd eaten breakfast. He has, with great presence of mind, to equip him for the delights of the morning. Uh, and says, okay, then, take your clothes off, come into bed, I need to tell you all the news. <laughs> right. In lots of different ways, this is the sex chapter. Okay, Rachel McMillan described Clarissa Oaks, the book Clarissa Oaks, a few books ago as the sex book. This is the sex chapter, man. That Having talked about the, the, the act of love indirectly and sort of mm, around the back of it many, many times over. We're going to be with our characters uh, in in the bedroom and talking about the bedroom a lot in this chapter. So I think we better strap ourselves in. <sighs> now, we, we get politely fast forwarded to them lying together there in bed and uh, pillow talk finally surfaces that we can pay attention to, right? Yeah. And, and I love that, you know, this was just well, we'll talk about this. You know, you kind of see yourself in these scenes. I'm going, man, I've come home many a time from long absences. Isn't this a great homecoming? And she says to him, you know, lying together with you has driven everything from my mind. I had all these things I wanted to tell you about. I'm thinking, man, this is great, Stephen. Well, I, yeah, who's got it better than you? And she asks if he's come home from the fleet on leave and if Jack's come home with him. And he says, no, he hasn't seen Jack, actually who's still with the blockading squadron for weeks, many, many weeks. And she says, oh, well, you know, then you don't know. And she's got even more to tell him about. She's telling him about Mrs. Williams, you know, having come to Woolcombe after Mrs. Morris ran off with their man, about Mrs. Williams finding Jack's letters from Amanda Smith. You know, it says that Mrs. Williams poured out all her methody cant about fornication, got Sophie worked up into a frenzy of self-righteousness and jealousy. 
And she says that she's so surprised that Sophie, who is certainly no fool, can be influenced by her mother, who is a very great fool, you know, to yeah. such a degree. And, you know, she says Sophie wrote Jack a very dramatic letter. We remember that one, we that did. Jack had come home to apologize and that she had turned him clean away. And then O'Brien writes, this is Diana saying, he went with a parting shot about goddamn ill-natured, unforgiving shrews that went home. And she has been crying her eyes out ever since. So maybe, maybe a bit of turn of fortune for Jack. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I have a hard time ascribing this to fortune, but Stephen clearly does in a way. And it's an odd little conversational turn. Stephen speculates about his own view of the Jack and Sophie marriage. He calls the marriage ill-fated. And he clearly suspects or knows indirectly what I think Diana is going to describe to us pretty directly, which is that Sophie is not a sexually driven person. Doesn't take pleasure in the act. She had dreaded her very, very difficult pregnancies. And Stephen believes there's a connection between jealousy and frigidity, or as he calls it, at least tepidness. And that these two emotions, these two states go hand in hand. Jack, on the other hand, is a very full-blooded man, and he's in, in, inviting the comparison between the sexual outlook and the sexual energy of these two people. Now, Diana kind of agrees with the connection between jealousy and frigidity, but thinks that Sophie is only frigid when her mother is close by, and adds that she has it on the best authority. And if you can remember all the way back to post-captain, you can speculate for yourself about what best authority means. Diana, anyhow, says she has it on the best authority that Jack in her words, is no artist in these matters. He can board and carry an enemy frigate with guns roaring and drums beating in a couple of minutes. But that is no way to give a girl much pleasure. In better hands, she would, I am sure, have been a very likely young woman. And oh, so much happier. And I, I don't know, as, as friend and cousin, I, I, I like Diana's perspective here. I'm not sure I like Stevens, to be honest, but that's that's one of the first <laughs> things that I don't particularly like about this whole plot discourse here. Um, Stephen acknowledges his position. He says, you know more about this than me. And Diana says, well, it's, it's a shame. Sophie still has a lovely body, but neither she nor anyone else is enjoying her body. And Stephen goes along with this and says, it's a shame and a bit of a waste. And Mike, having, having talked a little bit about the fortunes and the position of Sophie, we do get now to enjoy talking a little bit about Mother Williams and her connections. Right. You know, it's just, I think, you know, having not remembered what she wanted to tell Stephen, all of this is kind of rolling out one thing after another. She says, well, wait, wait, I forgot to tell you that Mrs. Morris is fellow, you know, this, this, you know, their, their man that Mrs. Morris had run off with turned out to have several wives already and has now been charged with bigamy, theft, and a number of other charges. And Mrs. Williams has left because she's going to be the prime prosecution witness. And she now feels very proud, very important. She, you know, she's not going to stop until this man hangs. And, you know, she's happy that she and her friend, Mrs. Morris, in her mind, are going to now live out their days together. And Diana says, you know, I bought them a little place, you know, for them to live in there in Bath. And Stephen says, oh, my gosh, you know, you've sold Barham down already. And she says, no, no. And she tells him that she has pawned her great diamond, the Blue Peter. <sighs> she 
Yeah, it's like, wow, wait a minute. You know, this is that same diamond that she used to save Stephen's life. Now she's kind of used it to save their financial fortune. She said she, you know, she barred 50,000 against it until their affairs are settled. And she says, Stephen, let me, you know, let me give you some money. She's thinking he's still, you know, poor as as can be as well. But Stephen has some news for her. Right, and again, Mike, we're catching up quite quickly with all the affairs of the uh, the, the matrimonial Villiers marriage here. Stephen says, "My affairs are settled," and and as you mentioned before, Mike, this this sounds like another piece of good news from the uh, the Spanish intelligence coup. He has his fortune back. It turns out that this signature on the receipt, this administrative screw up, was was no screw up at all. At least not not really an obstacle to him getting hold of the money that he'd stored there. He says, "We'll unpawn your bauble," meaning the blue Peter, and uh, he's going to give her a package to go with the jewel. And the package is a swathe of Lyon silk velvet, blacker, says O'Brien, than the darkest night. And of course, maybe at the back of our minds, we're thinking. I remember a husband giving his wife a gift of a bolt of uh, of, de- of beautiful fabric just a book or two ago, and we all know how that ended up. But here, in this situation, this is a really, really welcome gift. And Mike, to, to carry on with the idea of the sex chapter here, uh, we get this, first of all, very voluptuous description of it, you know, blacker than the darkest night. We get a description of it swathed around Diana's pale naked torso, and that's a very powerful image that only Stephen has been privy to so far. We have not. She is really, really excited by this. The text says she shrieks with rapture and praises up his brilliant conduct in putting their affairs back in order and had said that she'd always been confident that he could do it, wraps the silk around her, and we get the, the imagery of the black silk and her black hair and the blue eyes. And we have a moment to go, wow, at the, this, this scenario here with Diana. Mike, no, Diana is not everybody's cup of tea, right? But th- this is a piece of writing that puts her front and center. Oh, oh, oh! It does, and I'm big team Stephen, and and so thrilled to see these two together like this. This, and, and you know, she is. I mean, she like all of us has her faults, but uh, she's a pretty incredible woman here, and and this is a pretty incredible homecoming. <laughs> it really is, it's, and it's getting more incredible by the minute, Diana reports a change in the outlook of Sophie. And this is also since she had had the big falling out with Jack and had been crying her eyes out ever since, as, as Diana had already reported. More recently, since Mother Williams has gone, Diana describes Sophie as being now a different woman. She and Clarissa, that's to say Diana and Clarissa, who Diana says knows a great deal about the subject, had been comforting Sophie and trying to help her understand that men and women see infidelity differently. For a man, as she says, to leap into a welcoming bed does not mean treason, felony, or real serious unfaithfulness at all. Uh, and Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm okay with this. I'm very, very happy with the scene with Stephen and Diana. And I think I'm being softened up into accepting that Sophie is going to be you know, the one who corrects herself here. And I'm not, not entirely okay with that. Anyhow. we're asked to sort of accept that this is part of the moral code of the time. Stephen says he wishes he could have listened in on the conversations. Yeah, I bet you do, mate. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) all right. Uh, He says he knows so little about the way women talk among themselves, particularly on such matters. Yeah, right, Stephen, you, you and me and all the rest of the men in the world. And Diana says that she believes he would have learned a great deal. 
Yeah. <laughs> no kidding, <laughs> Diane. <laughs> oh. So before we get into the sexual reawakening of Sophie Aubrey, I'm just going to, I have my doubts about this, about how this is playing as a story about Sophie. Patrick O'Brien's favorite characters are Clarissa Oakes, Stephen Matcherin, and Diana Villiers. I mean, he, he loves Jack, but we don't see much of the story through Jack's eyes, especially not in the last four or five books. These favorite characters are summarizing the reasons for a rift between Jack and Sophie as having entirely nothing to do with Jack's misconduct. The reasons being, apparently, Sophie's not a very sexually aware person. Sophie's mother brings out a conservative and judgy streak in her. Jack's dalliances themselves are understandable according to the sexual mores of the time. Jack's main fault, besides lack of self-awareness, is that he isn't a very sensitive lover. And I, I'm not happy with that as a culmination of the Jack and Sophie story, especially since in this chapter, we're not getting it from Sophie's perspective. In the rest of the book, we're not really getting it from Sophie's perspective. And I, I think that maybe this is not the Jack and Sophie story. I think maybe this is a different story. And maybe we're seeing a reflection of part of the Patrick O'Brien story, because it seems like that's that's where this is sitting, in, at least in my head, at least. What do you think, Mike? Oh, no. Wow. Well, that's, you know, I, I hadn't quite taken it that far. I, like you, was a little uncomfortable here going, okay, I know this is supposed to be a period piece, but O'Brien usually goes broader than that. And I'm thinking, yeah. you know, how is this playing out the way it is? And I hadn't really gotten to that point, but thinking, oh yeah, maybe this is it. Because I, I know, I'll talk about this later too, that I was certainly finding myself and, and realizing how much the way I was reading this story was reflected by my own thoughts and beliefs and attitudes. You know, just yeah. like you a moment ago, I was with Stephen going, man, I'd love to hear more of those conversations. I would learn a lot. And Diana going, yes, you would learn a lot. And going, yeah, that's why I want to hear more of these. I need a little more. Well done. And well done, O'Brien here. But like you, I want to say, and, and you know, this is not cancel culture. This is not, mm -hmm. oh, Jack, you should be more enlightened like us. But it is saying, hold on a minute. There's there's yeah. more to the two of them than just this. And let's just not do a wave of the hand and go, oh, well, yeah. you know, it's okay. Yeah. Yes. I, 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 I like, I'm fine with Jack every now and again getting good fortune from, from all different sources. I, I'm not yeah, okay no. with Sophie's character being required to give him the good fortune without without being in on her side of it, I think is where I am. Well, and I'm with you. I, I think Sophie has proven herself to be a very capable person she yep. really has held this whole estate and his life together as as he's done these crazy things. I'd, I'd really like to hear a little bit more from her and be in her yeah. mind and through her eyes a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. Well, so now we get um, the uh, the corrective action in place. And it, it's funny, Clarissa and Diana, we learned, had told Sophie about the intense delight that there ought to be in lovemaking. And Diana says, it's our absolute duty as women to enjoy it and to give as much pleasure in return as we can. Pleasure being infectious, she she supposes. And she says that in, in this reported uh, intervention with Sophie, Clarissa had spoken much more delicately than her and had quoted a Latin author about the way men like their partners to behave. I'm like, this is the first of two really interesting digs into the world of Latin authorities here. Where do you think Clarissa is taking her cue from? Well, it's it's interesting. So, you know, there's an, a Latin tag, as you say, Ian, later in the chapter that I really wanted some help with. And, and I, I asked 
um, our consulting Latinist, Karen Ruff, about it. And then I realized later that I didn't ask her about this one. And I think right. it says a lot more about me and this okay. chapter than things we were just speculating <laughs> on going, okay, Calissa was talking about, you know, how men like their women to behave and, and a Latin author. Karen, can you help me? No, I didn't say that. So, but I remembered that Karen had identified back in Clarissa Oaks that Clarissa was quoting from Gaius Patronus's book, The Satyricon. So, you know, The Adventures of a Young Satyr or the book of Satyr-like adventures. And I'm thinking, well, could that have been the book? And sure enough, you know, there's some, some very likely things. You know, there's a passage in there which translated says, I prefer a woman who's modest and innocent rather than one who is experienced and knows all the tricks. The ideal sexual partner is someone who's responsive to her partner's needs and who's able to take pleasure in giving pleasure. A woman should not be too eager in bed. She should let her partner take the lead. Ah, but the best way to please a man in bed is to be yourself and to enjoy yourself. So I thought, mm-hmm. you know, there's certainly some things to choose from in Satyricon. Now, just doing a little bit of, of our own research there, you know, I'm always reminded that the classical Roman poet Ovid had written this art of love, you know, yeah. Ars Amatoria. And and chapter three is kind of advice to women. So, yeah. you know, that could have been it, but I don't think the reference is quite as good. And with us already having seen Clarissa quoting from the Sicaricot would make perfect sense. And, you know, yeah. who knows which which verses she decided to pull from there. Very cool. Oh, thank you, Mike. That's fantastic. Um, Let's hear some more, like you said, about Latin coming up in just a short while in this chapter. Now, we're back with Diana reporting this conversation between her and Clarissa and Sophie. And Sophie is uh, is to have said, "She, I thought you just lay there and let it happen. And Diana, bless her, said, a man does like some mark of appreciation for his efforts, you know. And that can only imagine how this might have landed with Sophie at a certain point. But anyhow, Diana had told Sophie that she needed a kind, gentle, considerate lover to put her in tune. Okay, so Diana's proposing that the remedy for Sophie's lack of enjoyment is to go find some enjoyment away from Jack. Uh, She needs a kind lover to show her what the talk and the poetry and the music and the fine clothes were all about. You know, what's the fuss all about? And she mentions a soldier who lives locally, Captain Adin, who famously gives balls. Yeah, I bet he does. Um, has, has danced with Sophie and showed her some particular attention, is absurdly handsome, has nothing to do with girls, but apparently the, the local married women line up for him. <laughs> kind of a, a, a dark-haired, respectable version of Yagiello by the sound of it. Nice. <laughs> and uh, as well as this, to Sophie's ears, probably outrageous suggestion that she take this guy as a bit of a lover. Diana and Clarissa also told her, told Sophie that there's nothing so bad for her and her looks as self-righteousness, discontent, and implied reproach. If your husband was unfaithful, they're saying to her, you should pay him back in his own coin, not out of revenge, but to avoid self-righteousness and to never put on a martyr's face again. And again, I, I would love to have heard Sophie's description to one of her women friends of this conversation, or I would love to have been a fly on the wall and got some of her reaction. Um, But the report from Diana is simply that Sophie was shocked at first and bemused that Sophie's next question was, well, what what about babies? And uh, Clarissa, who turns out to have been amazingly well-informed on behalf of Sophie, 
told her about trusting to the moon, trusting to the calendar, to her cycle, and that that alone, even so, was not absolutely safe. And this is kind of just left dangling that they talked to her a little bit about controlling her fertility. They talked to her a lot about the benefit of learning to enjoy sex and going, making, maybe taking a lover. And Diana, back in the conversation with Stephen, is kind of worried that Sophie might have taken her literally, but we don't yet know. At least we learn the captain is due to disappear off and rejoin his regiment in Madras in India next week. And as, as this little conversation draws to a close, this pretty epoch-making conversation, um, Diana asks Stephen to throw her her drawers, her underwear, so that she can have breakfast with Sophie at nine. And, and Mike, this leaves us with a question in mind about what might have happened here and what state might Sophie be in? Well, yeah, it's exactly where I went. I went, oh, please, please, O'Brien, let's not have a pregnant Sophie now. Let's not, you know, we we remember not (laughs) too long ago, you know, Jack had gone home with a captain who'd been away two years and his wife is pregnant. And I'm thinking, okay, he and Sophie have not been close lately. If he's on the blockade squadron for a while and she turns up pregnant, that would not be good. Oh, so I, I don't know. That that worried me a little bit. And it and it kind of I puzzled a little bit. I don't know about you, Idiot, but it was this, you know, they seem to be having this very direct, very frank conversation. And she goes, Oh, but I'm afraid they she might have taken us literally. Now <laughs> what? What was what was less than literal about here's the guy, this is what you should do, here's how you should do it. And oh my gosh, I think she might have done it, Stephen. Well, let's, you know, throw him in my drawers, let's go to breakfast. <laughs> Oh, why? Well, at breakfast, as as they're walking in, Sophie compliments Stephen on his splendid new fancy clothes. He tells her that he's bought them so his dress does not continue to grieve the poor balonas. He tells her the story about the, you know, any old rags. And uh, Stephen notices, though, that Sophie, in his words, is the beauty of the world. Says, you know, she's standing there tall, straight. And in the very height of her charming bloom, and this is this is Ian when I really got worried about a pregnant yeah. Sophie. I think, oh my gosh, she has clearly done something here. Oh no! But then I have another sort of an awkward moment, like we have in this chapter. He says he then also sees Bridget, who's sort of standing down, you know, right next to him, and thinks, ah, oh, as he looks into her beaming face, that she has the promise of as much beauty and even more. And I, I had a really hard time conflating the thought of. Oh, Sophie looks beautiful because she's just been with this captain. Oh, and yeah. here's my dear little daughter who has the promise of, and I'm like, well, wait, wait, wait. So, but <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Ian? Well, I I think it's absolutely classic O'Brien ambiguity to put Sophie immediately into the scene. And I'm sure there are plenty of readers who go, well, obviously she went and slept with the captain. Like, that's going to be obvious to some of us. To some of us, we're going to be going, what, really? This is so... It's a very nice bit of writerly sleight of hand to 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 leave us imagining it, to make it our own story in our own heads. And I think that's really, really great. I don't know why we get this juxtaposition, as you say, Mike, with this very awkward moment of contemplating his very young daughter, his still very young daughter. And, you know, we've just had beauty in the connection of sexual attraction and infidelity. And to have beauty associated with your daughter, uh, it's got a more than a little taste of ick. For me, I think. Anyway, we'll, we we can give Stephen a pass on that. I think. 
Right, right. You know, and for me, you know, Stephen's such a unique guy in yeah. all of this, you know, as we'll, you know, without throwing out a spoiler, as we'll, as we'll learn in a coming book <laughs> in terms of the way he interacts with a fair sex. He's just an interesting guy. Yeah. So, um, Stephen, as our kind of resident 18th century hippie, Yes. gets to play his own special role in society. Meanwhile, Bridget, I think, is, is evolving into a bit of a hippie as well because it was indeed her in riding britches astride a horse that he'd seen earlier that day. She's very proud of the riding britches. And uh, Stephen gets to see her and George and Padine, greets all of them. Sophie asks then if Stephen's come from the Bellona and asks when he had last seen Jack. He says he's come from London. He hasn't seen Jack for quite some time. And since a time before he'd had any letters from Sophie, he has heard, though, meanwhile, that he'd taken a splendid prize and he's expecting to see Jack soon. He has a post chase, he says, coming to take him to Torbay at 11 a.m. to rejoin Jack and the ship. And Diana, at this point, says, I'll drive you to Torbay. And we know Diana really likes taking charge of the coach and horses here and excuses herself to get ready. Now, I'm really waiting for one of those nice, cozy brother-sister chats between Stephen and Sophie. This is where I'd, what I'd really like to hear. But we get that a little bit interrupted, though, because Bridget says, no, 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 I want to come on the coach. I want to come with my mother and father. I want to stand up behind on the box. And Stephen is really against this. For, for an 18th century hippie, he's pretty good at paternal authoritarian, you know, disciplinarianism here. No, you shall not, my dear, said Stephen. Never in life. And the text says that none of Bridget's tears, none of her wheedling in Irish will move him even an inch, even though Padine, the traitor, as she sees him, is going to be standing up behind. Sophie says, Bridget, go put yourself in order, you know, tidy your face up. Your parents are going to leave. And then we get this little moment for Sophie and Stephen. She asks Stephen if he'll take a letter to Jack and give it to him with, as she calls it here, her dear, dear love. And Stephen doesn't get to see what's in the letter, but we do. Dear Jack, writes Sophie, may I beg for forgiveness. Oh, how I hope you are a better natured creature than I was. Love, S. And she seals it and hands it to Stephen. And Stephen and Padine and Diana ride off with it in Diana's new, fine, dark green coach, Stephen, meanwhile, looking back to see Bridget's freshly washed and uh, unbeslobbered face waving a handkerchief. So, with all of the reservations that came before about how Sophie's side of this story has been treated, it's a really, really great moment. All of us now filled with hope that there's a reconciliation coming here for Jack. Yeah. And and, and one thing I, I loved in that scene was you know, Sophie dashes off this note and, and O'Brien points out that when she seals it, she doesn't give a thought to, was it correct? Was it appropriate? Yeah. Did I write, you know, and it was kind of, it sounds like we've now moved to, you know, Sophie 2.0 or something that, that we're, we're now, she is feeling a little bit, you know, she's feeling some agency, but like we said, I'd love, I'd love, I'd love to, to, as to have had those conversations to have gotten into her mind yeah. a little bit. And it's, it's kind of reminding us that I think we're supposed to suspect that that earlier letter that she'd written, the accusatory letter, had been written with somebody else standing over her shoulder, you know, some, yes. some combination of a lawyer and her mother. And that, that may well have been the case. And that now we're getting the, the, the more natural, the more straight from the shoulder, Sophie, which is, which is a good thing. Well, they're off in this coach 
on the road past town, Stephen compliments Diana on this wonderfully smooth, fine green machine. And she goes into this detailed explanation of its construction, which she watched, you know, with this new kind of springs made from the best Swedish steel and how they're, you know, how they work and how they're connected. And Stephen then asked Diana to relieve his mind. And, you know, she says, certainly. And he, he explains that Bridget is a quick, as he calls it, shatterbrained, not scatterbrained, shatterbrained individual who once slipped down off his saddle into a pile of soft filth because she'd seen a baby rabbit. And he says, and, and O'Brien writes, so in pure compliment to me, swear and promise and pledge yourself never to let her onto the box of a coach so tall and the road so hard purely and simply in compliment to me and my superstitions. And Diana says, well, very well, my dear. And, you know, in, in the kindest way, she says, and here is my hand upon it, patting him quickly. And, and I'm thinking back, Ian, O'Brien's made a point here, you know, not in life. No, no, you're not getting up on that box. And then here he's talking to Diana about that. And I thought, O'Brien's going to really emphasize this a couple of times here. So I'm thinking, you know, I don't know why, but I want to stick a pin in that one, just that he's, he's made such a point. Yeah, indeed. Coach travel's not always completely safe. And by the way, they're carrying this letter from Sophie to Jack. It wouldn't be the first time in the canon that a letter carrying redemption and possible forgiveness had gotten lost in transit. Mm. By, by the way, I really like the description of leaf springs for all of you mechanical engineers out there. Uh, Diana gave a very nice description of a leaf spring. And I, I had a quick look at this. Um, leaf springs were indeed patented in 1804 for horse carriages and are still part of the way that you know vehicles and trailers and stuff are sprung to this day. So nice job. I, I can only imagine that somewhere in his card index system, O'Brien had something about a patent for leaf springs. And he thought, I'll find a way to put that in a story somewhere. And, uh, and here it is. Brilliant. Oh. Anyhow, the the ride goes well. Stephen and Diana are really delighted by how well the horses run. He tells her, very diplomatically, of course, she is the delicate whip of the world. Uh, the hedges go flying by. They navigate that devilish bridge at Maiden Oscott, the one that we heard about already earlier in the book that Jack had been worried about. They navigate that with an almost insolent ease and they stay then at the same inn as last time. And I love the fact that insolent is described as the, the, the ease of the passage of the carriage. I think insolent is a pretty good word for some kinds of, uh, so, some aspects of Diana's character as well. Right, right. You know, this rude lack of respect sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, I got this. Yeah. Now, as the horses are being walked up and down as they're cooling off, Stephen gets to talk with Padine about the small farm that had so enraptured Padine. I might remember this some time ago now, maybe a couple of books ago even. Stephen had promised this to Padine as a reward for all the work that Padine has done to take care of Bridget and also to, to be a companion for Clarissa. It's a very, very delicate conversation because he's not sure exactly where he stands. We also are not sure what's going on here because it seemed like the promise was right there and present a couple of books ago and Padine is still with us and hasn't gone over to Ireland to take up this farm. It's a delicate conversation and they're both trying to say something without giving offence. And Stephen wonders to himself afterwards why it could still be that Padine hadn't left to take up the place on the farm. Perhaps he'd felt that a wife was necessary and therefore that while he was single he was unsure whether he could run it or whether he might have lost his spirit of independence from years of servitude and later on 
Still thinking and arranging the curls of his wig, Stevens speculates that maybe Perdine was consumed by a hopeless passion for Clarissa Oakes. And he thinks to himself, that's a remote possibility, but not much more remote than the possibility that once faced me of being together with Diana. And he decides he'll say no more. and He's not going to put more pressure on Padine, other than to maybe suggest that a, t- a tenant farmer could be found for the time being to keep the land clean and in heart. And he's been sitting mulling over this when he gets called back to his married life. And Diana says, are you ever coming to bed? And she blows the candle out. Yeah. Again, this this warm thing, you know, darling, I'm in bed. I'm waiting. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, the next day, five minutes after they arrive in Torbay, much unlike the last time they arrived there, Jack's much younger half-brother, Philip, calls out to Dr. Matron and you know, tells him that he's in charge of a boat. They're about to leave for the Swallow, an aviso, this, this small dispatch-carrying ship, you know, bound for the offshore squadron. And Philip's like, oh, Dr. Matron, you're going out? Come on, come with me. And O'Brien writes, the offer could not be refused, but they parted reluctantly like lovers, unwilling forced and constrained, regretting the fair breeze that carried the boat out, out, and away. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just, boy, you know, a, a rose stake through my heart of how how sweet, oh. how wonderful things are at the moment between Stephen and Diana. I just love that. Oh. Oh. A lot happier, I'm going to say, for Stephen and Diana than I am for Jack and Sophie, however much they seem to be on their way to being reconciled. Uh, Stephen and Diana have had this very, very emotionally mixed experience as a, as a couple, but here they are. They're dealing with the situation, odd as it is. They're dealing with it like adults. And I, I think that's a contrast to Jack and Sophie, who, despite their experience as a couple and their family and the stability of the, the social situation that they're in, they're a bit like teenagers to me. And they're, be, or they, they're being portrayed a little bit like teenagers. Neither of them has really faced up to what's going on. Jack, least of all by far. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I like this. I like to see Diana and Stephen in good shape like this. Well, Mike, this might be a good moment for us to step indoors and make sure our loved ones are doing okay. So why don't we do that? And we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So welcome back from whatever delights we're keeping you during the break there. Mike, we're back aboard the Aviso with young Philip Aubrey, and uh, we, we're going to hear something about the experience of young George Aubrey, right? Yeah. Now that now that they're back aboard, you know, Philip's got some privacy here, and and in his little tiny cabin, he tells Stephen that George, Jack's son, who's now going to a new school, O'Brien tells us, between Folly and Plush. Philip's heard that he told his schoolmates that his father is a sea officer and an adulterer. And the boys in his class had asked how he knew. And George had said that his grandmama had told him and his sisters uh, you know, about yeah. Jack being an adulterer. And, and Philip is bringing this up because he thinks that's a miserable thing to tell children. Oh. And Stephen first confirms that Mrs. Williams is no blood relation of Philip's, as, as we know, she's not. 
and then tells Philip that in his considered opinion, Mrs. Williams is, and I quote, a perfectly odious woman. And, you know, and don't we all agree? Amen. <laughs> Yeah. It's it's interesting because O'Brien writes that as soon as Stephen says this, he writes, as though struck down by a judgment, you know, he's pitched forward out of his chair and onto the deck. You know, the <laughs> boat has, has something, you know, you know, untoward has happened with this boat. And Philip helps him up on his way, you know, kind of quickly out of the cabin to see what in the world this younger midshipman who has the watch has done to the vessel. Uh, and then we, you know, we read that Philip and the captain of the vessel, a master's mate and some prime seamen, you know, now have to work all through the night, kind of sorting the ship back out. And when Stephen is called aboard the Queen Charlotte in the morning as, as he's leaving there, Philip, you know, leans over and asks him to please not tell Jack the story about George. Now, here's an interesting thing. I, I read the text. It says, please don't tell, don't tell Jack. I also thought he might have meant, please don't tell Jack that we accidentally jibed the Aviso and nearly sank. <laughs> Could be both. <laughs> it's a really good point, and I hadn't thought about that. You're right. <laughs> oh, very good. Now, we're back aboard the Queen Charlotte. We're back in the company of Admiral Stranra and his staff. And Dr. Sherman, the surgeon aboard the flagship here, tells Stephen that he and Sherman's assistant are worried about Admiral Stranra. The Admiral often mentions Dr. Maturin. They think that he's too weak to go home for rest or for treatment in a small vessel in the gales that are coming at this time of year. The Admiral, for himself, refuses to detach a ship, a capital ship of the scale and fighting power of the Charlotte. So they ask Stephen for his help. And, you know, it, it so often happens at a time of crisis or uncertainty in the story that we get brought back down to sort of a feeling of being on solid ground by Stephen doing some doctoring and doing some pretty cool doctoring. And here we are. Stephen examines the Admiral and notes what, what he calls a dropsical tendency, which in, in modern medical language means edema, in this case probably edema caused by um, congestive heart failure, a certain kind of physical collapse and physical weakness, and a rapid and irregular pulse. And Stephen knows that the Admiral probably unfairly has a low opinion of what Sherman said and conversely has an exaggerated opinion of Stephen's own powers. Um, but he decides to go on ahead and do his best to examine the Admiral, calls for silence on deck and then listens, tapping as he goes on the Admiral's bare chest. And Sherman, who's never seen this before, looks on with astonishment. Stephen very quickly shares a, a summary of his diagnostic findings with the Admiral. So he says, this is indeed grave. And if he has got congestive heart failure, it's, it's not great, to be honest. But it might well look worse than it is. And he both clinically correctly and also personally diplomatically nicely says, I'll consult with Mr. Sherman and his colleagues and ag agree on a course of physic. And that that was great in him, I think, for keeping the other physicians present in the uh, in the estimation of the admiral here. As the text says here, the admiral took his hand and, with a look of affectionate regard on a face not accustomed to show affection, thanked him for his care. And Stephen steps into the company of Sherman and his assistants and says that the problem is in the heart. He calls a not inconsiderable hydropericardium, edema, fluid and swelling around the sac, around the heart. The first step, he says, is to reduce the pulse and recall his heart to its duty. Sherman asks, how did Stephen know about this heart edema? It's not apparent to Sherman. And Stephen says he could hear it, 
with auscultation, strictly speaking, auscultation and percussion, listening and tapping on the chest. This, this is a diagnostic tool. Now, nowadays, it's pretty common. It's very widely taught in clinical practice. Very little known in England at the time. Stephen had learned it from his friend Corvissart in France and another friend that Stephen had studied with, uh, a doctor called Lyonek, had carried the method further. And be- besides being a very good description of how you might get the first findings of hydropericardium, this is also an accurate description of the history of this technique. So Corvissart was a naturalist and physician in the late 18th, early 19th centuries was known for his ability to diagnose heart complaints by careful listening, had become chief physician to Bonaparte in 1800, well before the time of this story. And this guy, Lyonek, uh, who was a pupil of Corvissart, um, alongside another famous physician called Dupuytren, who was another person that Stephen knew and admired. Uh, Lyonek was a leader in promoting scientific approaches to medical diagnosis and had you know, encouraged his students to learn this skill of palpating the patient's thorax to gain direct knowledge of what was going on rather than just relying on the patient's own kind of verbally described clinical history. And he invented the stethoscope, the one that we see around the neck of all the doctors in ER and St. Elsewhere and all the others, initially to examine female patients without making physical contact between the level of the ear and the level of the breast, <laughs> using this instead of a rolled up tube of paper. So, Stephen, having given his little uh, mini lecture here on auscultation and percussion as a way of finding fluid in the thorax, diagnosed another treatment that 21st century physicians would recognize for heart problems. He suggests digitalis, digitalis purpurea. That's the common foxglove, along with 15 drops of laudanum to take the edge off. I mean, uh, make the patient more compliant. (laughs) And Sherman has another little objection or a little setback. He says, well, digitalis, isn't that toxic? As Stephen says, it can be. Good news is Sherman has a jar of the dried leaves. One of his assistants says he's read Dr. Withering's paper on its use and offers to powder the digitized leaves for treatment. And Withering, another spot-on reference, late 18th century physician, used to um, systematizing the study of medicinal use of plants. And the, the, the digitalis, the, the active ingredient in foxglove, had been come to be known as a treatment for congestive heart failure. The active ingredient, cardiac glycosides, in particular nitrides, are still used in the management of angina and the management of a congestive heart failure. So the chemical descendants of digitalis are still still around, and Dr. Withering's work then is still influencing the work that's, uh, that's going on today. So Stephen's done his bit to restore the Admiral to some kind of health. I think uh, it might be his time to do the same thing for Jack. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think absolutely time. So Stephen rejoins the Bologna. Jack, of course, is delighted to see him. Killick says the doctor looks prime. I, I suspect, you know, the doctor's got on some of his new outfits here. Mm. And Bondum tells Stephen that his head is quite healed. Stephen's pleased to, to listen and not hear that slur that had originally worried him about Bondum. Jack and Stephen... You know, quickly changed. Jack tells him that, you know, they're about to welcome Captain Fanshawe aboard for dinner. And he, you know, Jack asks after Diana. He compliments Stephen on this new, uh, yet another new outfit that he changes into. And Stephen tells Jack that he's extremely rich again. His fortune is no longer mislaid. And that vast wealth and an eminent London tailor improve a man's looks amazingly. Uh, He tells Jack that Diana and Bridget are well. They send their love. And that Sophie has charged him with delivering a note, which he hands to Jack. And he said to, you know, she said to give it to him with her dear love. 
And Jack all of a sudden looks very stern and asks if Sophie actually said those words. And Stephen says, yes, those, those are her very words. Or perhaps it was dear, dear love. And I think Jack, a little bit surprised, excuses himself. He goes, you know, I, I got to go read this right now. He dashes out, as we know uh, that Jack did. It's a very short note. So he's right back again. And O'Brien says, you know, he's taller, straighter. His face is glistening. And he's telling Stephen that it's the best letter he's ever received. He's so glad that Stephen brought it. He's complimenting Sophie's handwriting, her delicate hand. And he picks up his fiddle, which O'Brien tells us is, you know, has been long untouched and dashes off in the words of O'Brien, a truly astonishing trill, just as the bosun's calls pipe Captain Fanshawe aboard. What a what a wonderful scene, right? Absolutely. So much of the canon and what we know about Jack wrapped up there, you know, music is his outlet for really, really strong emotion. Uh, And, you know, he'll uh, he, he regards anything that says, you know, that says, expresses a n- nice and profound sentiments as you know, el- elegantly composed and written, which is nice given that Sophie had had second thoughts about whether this hastily written note was really nicely composed. But Jack says this is the this is the the, the prose writing of the world. Now, pretty soon we get to sit down to dinner with Captain Fanshawe, and Captain Fanshawe is really bringing the mood down. He's got all kinds of worries about their poor state of supply as they are here on the Brest station. Has Jack, he asks, picked up any slops in port? Slops meaning um, cloth and clothing made for sailors. Jack says he didn't because he didn't, didn't have any money. He'd been busy in the country and had counted on slops being delivered to the squadron. And Fanshawe says, well, over in the Ramillies, we're really short of supplies in food and in slops. No jackets, no blankets, no slop shoes. And it's coming to the time of year when they're going to need cold weather clothing. The last supply ship, he says, would have been beaten back. They're not expecting anything for a month or more. Can Jack, asks Fanshawe, spare a few blankets for the sick berth? And Jack says, I'll, I'll go check with the purser. We also discover that this mutton that they're eating, uh, elegantly carved by Stephen, is the last of the mutton aboard the Bellona. And I think at some point, Fancho had said, oh, delicious, very, very well hung. And I wonder if that was a euphemism for, hmm, this mutton's acquired a bit more character than, than, than I might normally think healthy. But anyhow, they're, they're enjoying this mutton. And uh, Fancho recounts the latest of what he's heard of the land war. He worries that with Wellington staying on in the Garonne area, what he calls the land of Goshen, a, a biblical reference to a land of plenty, with with Wellington kind of stuck there in the south of France, the squadron risks French ships coming out from other southern ports, from Rochefort, from La Rochelle, maybe even as far north as Lorient, and joining those in Brest to cut the squadron to pieces or to join the fleet in Brest, since the Admiral's so far out of sight of Ushant that those places are unguarded. And whether they're engaged by the French or not, he concludes, we take great pains, as you know damn well, and an anxious time we have of it, what with tides, rocks, more danger in this station than a battle once a week. And b- besides giving us the chance for a bit of a downer here from Captain Fanshawe, we get a nice little historical resetting of our position in the timeline. Mike. I like this. For, for, for several books now, we've been having 1812, 1812B, 1813, 1813B and C, bit of 1814, bit of back to, you know, we've been kind of going around in the world of stasis while Jack and Clarissa and Stephen and Sophie and Diana have had all these adventures. But I think O'Brien's giving us a signal that we're about to get into some 
parts of the storyline that require us to be situated in real history again. So here we get an anchor in the real world timeline. Um, Wellington's army at the end of the War of the Sixth Coalition uh, was based around the Garonne River and in southwest France generally at the end of 1813, at the beginning of 1814. So I think that's where we're now meant to see ourselves. Nice. Let, let's watch and see if we get any more clues. This is important because as we've been planted in this real world timeline, we are therefore just coming up to Napoleon's kind of almost final defeat at the Battle of Paris. We're therefore probably about a year and a bit away from the Hundred Days and from Waterloo and the true end of the Napoleonic Wars as they're generally known. And that's going to be important. If you know the titles of the books coming in the canon, you know this is going to be important. So th thank you to Billy for setting us right in terms of history. And uh, I, I think Stephen and Jack have just about had enough of his downer mood here. Right, right. You know, the decanter goes around and Stephen even excuses himself, says, you know, I, I, I really have to go check on my patients. So <laughs> Jack... Jack had hoped to change Billy's conversation. Stephen, you know, I think it tried to help. And now he's like, I'm excusing myself. And interestingly, in kind of a mirror image, he finds his assistants hungry, having, you know, won out of their private stock and have been for some time now eating only ship's provisions. And in addition to that, the sick berth is full of pox cases from their time ashore during repairs and from all the many injuries they've had in all the storms recently. You know, Fanshawe was saying how dangerous, you know, that this being on this station, this squadron, is worse than having a battle every week. And before beginning his rounds, though, Stephen interestingly asked to examine Bondin when his watch above is over. So he had seen Bondin very quickly. I think he wanted to confirm for himself what's going on. And sure enough, they say that they, you know, when Bondin's watch is over, they kind of pin him and almost drag him to the sick berth. And Bondin's thrilled to see that it's 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 the doctor who's asking for him. And he says, you know, I, I didn't have a chance to ask earlier, how are the ladies back home? And Stephen tells him they send their love. And Stephen examines him and he says, well, you know, in fact, you are completely healed. And the captain's going to be so glad because he's been concerned. And Bondin says, well, he and Killick have been really worried about the captain. And Stephen says, well, they may well find the captain much better presently. So, yeah. All right. We're setting things right here, even in this you know, kind of down and dreary conversation. Yeah. And uh, Jack is also feeling better that evening as he gets to listen to Stephen's account of what's going on at Wilcombe. So remember, Jack's been afloat this whole time, ever since the parting of ways with Sophie. It's Stephen who's got all the knowledge of what's going on back in England. And Jack is really glad to hear that Mrs. Williams has left, appreciates Diana giving her the little house that set her up in Bath there. And Stephen says, well, both Diana and I are back in funds again. And this is great news. It, it also accompanies news from Jack, who, as, as we had heard right at the beginning of the chapter, is not as much of a pauper anymore as he had been when Stephen last saw him. He says, two of the appeals that were outstanding have come through in his favour. Lawrence, the lawyer, expects to win the third, and alongside that, the recent prize, he says, should just about set me afloat again in a very modest fashion. So lucky Jack is lucky in all kinds of ways, this chapter. And Stephen uh, wants to keep Jack talking about the prize. He knows it's his kind of happy place. He's sure, he says, that you pursued the prize with great zeal, with a, perhaps a very slight dig at Jack for being a notorious prize chaser. Jack says, well, I did. But with no thought of prize money, I'd seen her chasing a British merchantman, he says. Uh, I was spoiling for a fight. He was after the fight, he says, and also the plain call of duty, too, of course. 
And Stephen's not going to let that drop. He says, well, the, the view in the fleet is that you broke away from maneuvers and chased through a desire for gain. And Jack keeps his composure. He says, well, that's an untrue perspective. Jack tells Stephen then what had happened in detail and says that although the money was uncommon welcome from all hands, it was neither here nor there. He had been brought up, he says, thinking that making money was a proper thing to do, a proper pursuit of mankind. So Jack's claiming um, you know, the pursuit of economic gain as its own absolute good, just like Admiral Stranra had been kind of crying up the pursuit of the economics of land as, a, as an absolute good. So this is the proper pursuit of mankind. And he goes on and says he remembers his father, who didn't have much time to improve Jack's morals. Uh, congratulations on your moral improvement of your son there, General Aubrey. Jack's father did urge Jack to take notice of certain precepts of a religious nature. And he tells Stephen that his father, General Aubrey, had attended Eton. Now, Eton is a name that means something very, very clear and important and significant to pe people of the English culture who care about these things. You know, it's the preeminent, the largest, by no means the oldest, but the largest and most famous of the old private schools, perversely known as public schools in England. And I, th I think Stephen is teasing a little bit. He says, um, Eton, is that, the, uh, is that the large school near Windsor? And uh, he says, yeah, I, I fear it's a sad place. He remembers trying to visit it with a friend and they had been beset at Salt Hill by a bunch of boys from the school dressed as Jack Puddings and Mary Andrews, sturdy, threatening beggars insisting on arms. And he had heard that Eaton possesses a store of Greek between them. So he says this, this is a place of learning, but also a place of kind of cruelty and entitlement. And, and this Salt Hill thing, this, this is quite an old Eaton tradition, isn't it? It it really is. And I was I was kind of blown away by this because I, I don't know anything about that. I do know Eaton, as you say. It it has quite the reputation now and, and certainly a big history there. And Stephen is referring to an actual event, Eaton Montem or Ad Montem to the mountain, a custom observed at Eaton from 1561 until 1847. And this is, custom has really changed. You can read all kinds of uh, things about the history of this custom over the years. Now, you know, it, it was, at, as Stephen described it at that time, it went originally from boys who were out collecting money and sprinkling people with salt at this mound, two miles from the college, right there on the public road from London to Bath. And it grew over time to boys in this fancy dress. And the fancy dress was all provided by the captain of the school. And these boys would demand salt, meaning money, growing out of that custom of Roman soldiers having been paid in salt. You know, they demand money from passersby. And the money that was raised, less the expenses for all the dress and ceremony, went to the captain's educational expenses. It was kind of, it seemed like, you know, perhaps kind of a, a little bit of a hazing ceremony for, for youngsters right. new to the school here that they have to get you know, dressed up and go out and collect this money for the captain. But I, I will say that it, it has a fascinating history and an evolution that, that we can't do justice to here. But, you know, that as Stephen described it for that time, right on, you know, absolutely right on there. <laughs> And it's it's one of these nice little odd bits of you know social history of England that O'Brien likes to drop in. Um, it is very very peculiar. Uh, nonetheless, we we get back to the reason why we had this little digression down uh, a discussion of Eaton's customs. Jack says that the only Latin 
that his father ever learned was from Eton. And he, he describes as being a quotation from the Bible, this little line that he comes up with, which he says he believed was from, from one of the minor prophets when his father had passed it on to Jack. And Jack says he often thinks of this when he's shaving or rigging church, but he didn't think of it at all the day he had chased the privateer, even though it might have been lucky, and thinks he might pass it on to his son, George, for luck and wisdom. I might, we're we're going to dig into this. I'm going to have a go at pronouncing the, the Latin tag here. We'll see where we get on with it. Rem facias, rem siposis recte, sinon quocumque modo rem. And I've no idea if I've got the pause and the emphasis in the right places there. But uh, there's a lot about rem and there's a lot about recte. What, what's going on here? Is this, is this actually a quote from the Bible or something else? Well, well, actually, you know, Stephen jumps in and says, well, well, Jack, you know, I'm kind of sorry to contradict your father. Um, you know, perhaps some wicked schoolfellow made game of him. He says, it's not a quote from the Bible. It's from Horace. And he's trying to tell Jack what it means. He says, well, Pope renders it as, and, and so it's kind of, this is what Pope would say of it, get place and wealth, if possible, with grace. If not, by any means, get wealth and place. And, and Stephen says, you know, I'm, I'm sure, Jack, you would not want to pass that down to your good open-faced son as, as some sort of ancestral wisdom. Yeah, this is, this, is, this is not a good moral precept whatsoever. He's trying to tell him. I, I get the impression that in general, Jack should make a long list of all the quotes and aphorisms he's ever half heard and understood, should write them all down and resolve never to pass any of them on because he's never got any of them right or the right way up or in the right context or anything. God bless him. Yeah. And if he knows anything, he should know anything coming from his dad is likely not to be a good thing. So. Yes, indeed. 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 Beginning and, and not ending with stock tips. Right. 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 <laughs> so Mike, talk us through this because the kind of quick translation there about get place and wealth. I'm sure we're going to learn that there's deeper insights behind this translation than just that kind of fling against materialism. Yeah. And so, you know, Pope was actually not translating it. He was kind of taking it and writing an imitation poem set in England so that, you know, we've got that. We'll come back to that. Now, a simple translation, if you go to the hmssurprise.org's wiki, they say the simple translation is make money, make money fairly if you can, but if not, make money any way possible. So, Mm. yeah, there's kind of a straight up thing. However, this is one that I did reach out to Karen Ruff, our consulting Latinist, and I thought, you know, there's got to be a little bit more going on here. I know this is from Horace's Epistles 1.1, but I don't know anything about Horace's Epistles, and and Karen Blesser does. So, you know, she goes on to... uh, you know, looks at the classical library translation in context and writes back. She says that the their translation is, does he advise you better who bids you make money, money by fair means if you can, if not by any means money, or he who an ever-present help urges and fits you to stand free and erect and defy scornful fortune. So here, you know, wow. we can see how this, this phrase has been left completely out of context here. And Karen goes on to tell us that Horace's epistles are kind of filled with allusions to classical children's games from Rome at the time mm. and, and proverbs, you know, and, and children's proverbs. And she says, in this larger passage, Horace uses the wisdom repeated in children's games as a contrast 
to the conventional wisdom of wealth and status-seeking adult society. And, and you know, O'Brien, you know, we remember, sets this anecdote right after the anecdote about the Eaton boys. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and Stephen certainly thinks they were seeking money unfairly there. Right. And, you know, this kind of conjures a scene not, you know, totally unlike the boys' games in Horace's hypothetical scene. And we might add that, you know, this is wisdom that Jack says, I'm thinking about handing down as wisdom to my son. So, you know, it just all (laughs) fits so well here. And Karen also was kind enough to go back to the Pope, not translation, but the rendering here. Um, And, you know, Pope's imitation of Horace's epistle, applying it to England. And now a little context. It's this phrase in context, who counsels best, who whispers best. Be but great with praise or infamy. Leave that to fate. Get place and wealth, if possible, with grace. If not, by any means, get wealth and place. For what? To have a box where eunuchs sing, and foremost in the circle, I a king? Or he who bids thee face with steady view, proud fortune, and look shallow greatness through, and while he bids thee, sets the example too. I think, oh man, oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm just getting kind of little goosebumps here. Thank you, Karen. You know, a much nobler sentiment and contrast between two choices. You know, how do we live our lives? And, and in this contrasting set of choices and values and beliefs in the context of the Yellow Admiral, I mean, we're seeing these differences over enclosure, these differences between Jack and Griffiths, between Jack and, by extension, you know, Griffiths' uncle, the admiral. And we see much more how this bears on Jack's pursuit of the prize. You know, Jack wasn't going after the money. Now, we we have to admit, and, and, and I think this... We take this out. He was spoiling for fight. Yeah. And he was kind of leaving, you know, praise or infamy to fate, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever they decide to do it. I'm not going after the money. I'm kind of doing my see fit. Well, Mike, it's, it's great. I mean, the, these lines, as I'm kind of listening to them, as you read them out, we've got little bits of the O'Brien canon in microcosm there, uh, a, a box where eunuchs sing. That sounds like Sir Joseph listening to the young individual singing Carabino at the opera, who in foremost in the circle, I a king. We have all this kind of jostling for place in the court of the regent. Oh, this, 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 is, this is brilliant stuff. We're not done with it yet, though, are we? No, 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 no. The, you know, these differences in the way people live their lives is made clearer and more relevant to our story in some verses that follow very shortly. Pope writes, well, if a king's a lion, at the least the people are a many-headed beast. Can they direct what measure to pursue who know themselves so little what to do? Alike in nothing but one lust of gold, just half the land would buy and half be sold. Their country's wealth are mightiest misers drain or crossed to plunder provinces the main. The rest, some farm the poor box, some the pews, some keep assemblies and would keep the stews, some with fat bucks on childless doters fawn, some win rich widows by their chine and brawn, while with the silent growth of 10%, in dirt and darkness, hundreds stink content. Wow. 
boom. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we, we've had this before, but I this, this idea that you know you pick up on one quote and you read before or you read after and you get so much. I, I think this is one of the biggest finds. I think Mike, I think you did a fantastic job digging this out. Again, so we- this time, lots of the plot of this book we've been talking about property and poverty and equality and here it all is yeah we, we've even got this you know winning rich widows that you know the story of yeah. grandma. we've got you know it's you know, I'm, I'm sitting here wondering thank you karen for bringing this to our attention that you know did o'brien take this and help use this to weave his characters and his plots did you know which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing with this. It's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant here. And he continues to bring its relevance into the story here. Yeah. The discussion uh, reminds him, he says, of discussions with Jack about uh, Sir Joseph Blaine. He goes on and tells Jack what Sir Joseph had told him about the career possibilities and really where Jack's potential for being yellowed or for being genuinely promoted, where that actually lies. And I, I like the fact that We've managed to deliver this all now in this kind of very calm, composed way. Steve has managed to find a moment when Jack is on an even keel and is otherwise, you know, had some good news. And very evenly and without any interruption, he gets these points across. First of all, the point that Jack's criticism of the ministry and his votes against the ministry in Parliament have harmed Jack's standing in the government for now. Secondly, the point that Lord Stranraer's report about Jack's seamanship and general negligence on the Brest station and his abandoning of manoeuvres for highly profitable prize chasing have harmed Jack's standing further in the Admiralty. And that given the importance of the Admiral's controlled votes in the Commons and his sway of the Admiralty, Jack would, on first inspection, be well advised to retire as a post-captain so as not to expose himself to the affront of being passed over. And Mike, part, part of me here is back in post-captain and people not wanting to be exposed to an affront and the ridiculous contortions that they go through. And finally, Stephen reports that Sir Joseph had thrown out some remarks about the possibility of a commissionership or civilian employment concerned with hydrography. And Jack absorbs all this in silence until he remarks on the sound of a whale scraping the side of the ship. Now, Mike, I, I can remember a, a plot point uh, arriving in a book not many books ago when we were skewered in the side by a narwhal, uh, thinly disguised as a metaphor. And I, I, I was taken back to the same place again. There's a there's a hidden big beast scraping up against the side of your fragile kind of conveyance here. And you know there are things going on around you that might be benign or that might threaten you. So, so Stephen goes on and tells Jack about the report that he, Stephen, has made to Sir Joseph about the Chilean faction's desire for independence and that the authorities had agreed to find this kind of almost greenlit, unacknowledged, deniable, unofficial support for Chilean independence. And Jack wants to have a little polite dig at Stephen here, needling him a little bit. Oh, yes, he says, you're very much in favour of independence. And Stephen replies, you too might think more highly of the state had you ever been dependent. <laughs> and uh, this makes me laugh for two reasons, Mike. But first of all, go back to the Alexander Pope line a few minutes ago. Uh, a king's a lion, at the least the people are a many-headed beast. Well, there you go. We've got the, the will of the many-headed beast here. Um, second of all, Mike, remind me what date it is as you and I are sitting recording this. Right, right. We're recording this on July 4th, 2023. So this in the States is Independence Day. <laughs> Happy 4th. <laughs> right. Well, so Stephen says, bearing in all this, he's, he's being very kind of slow and methodical putting the picture before Jack. 
Here's how his reputation is somewhat harmed. Here are the potentialities that might exist. There is this movement for independence. And as we got reminded a little by the reference to the date of 1814, yeah, we, we with historical perspective know the war is coming to an end soon. Stephen, with current perspective, suspects that the war might be coming to an end soon and that there could therefore be a change in government and widespread unemployment for naval people. And he asks whether it would suit Jack to be employed in Chilean waters, doing some surveying, maybe distinguishing himself in a temporary, nominally retired condition with the promise of reinstatement and the possibility the possibility of a rear admiral's blue flag in due course when perhaps the conditions in the ministry and perhaps the chain of command in the admiralty is not what it is today. And Sir Joseph and Lord Melville think between them that from a service point of view, it could be arranged. So what looked like a very bleak situation, Mike, at the beginning of this careful exposition by Stephen, turns into one that might have some possibility. Now, the the Jack Aubrey of post-captain when, when offered that kind of temporary uh, siding in his career, threw it back in the person's face and said, I have my duty to stay with the service and I'm a Royal Navy guy through and through. But that was then and this is now. Yeah. Jack says this time, unlike to Canning, he says, this is a most prodigious, attractive prospect. And he, he mutters something about, you know, being out of the hurly burly for a while and confirms that Stranraer's influence which will not pass on to Griffins is the strongest thing against him. Stephen nods. And Jack says, well, he hears that the Admiral's doing poorly and asks Stephen if he's likely to live. (laughs) Oh, boy. Just before we get into this little outburst here, I I don't think it's so terrible. Like, it's not a particularly tasteful or well-thought-out remark, but it is between two friends. But right. Stephen, and, and I think Jack's kind of thinking out loud, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. How can you tell Jack is making an error because his mouth is open and his jaws are moving? Right. Stephen is all over this. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph cried. Stephen, starting up, do you ask me to discuss a patient, sir? Be damned to your impertinence! You'll be desiring me to give him a quietus next. A quietus meaning uh, euthanasia, in other words, something to bring on deck. And Jack withdraws straight away. Oh, pray do not be angry, Stephen. I did not mean to ask you as a medico. I only threw it out like that, talking in my sleep, as I as it were. Sit down again, I beg. It was a most scrub-like thing to say, even silently. And I do apologise, without the least reserve. Yours is a beautiful idea. I like it of all things. And I'm infinitely obliged to you and Sir Joseph. Pray, let me fill your glass. They sat reflecting, and when Jack had filled their glasses yet again, he said timidly, It would be the most beautiful idea in the world, but for that wretched probability, the probability of a flag. End of chapter eight. So, Mike, really fascinating chapter, really finely poised now that all the different story strands of this book. Yeah. It, it's so true. It, I mean, we wondered last week, you know, how long this break with Sophie would go on. And, and you know, it appears that O'Brien has resolved that in short order, un- unless she's pregnant or caught in her own discretion. Yeah. And, and we, you know, we've heard that there's, you know, likely to be a quick resolution of Jack's legal cases. So that all looks good. 
Yeah, it does. And I, I'm going to say, I, I'm still a little bit not okay with how O'Brien has handled this bit of the story. And I, I, I think we've probably covered that enough. But Sophie, I would really like to have seen and been in on some of the conversations uh, in, involving Sophie. I'm, you know, I, I think for her to offer Jack a way back in to the to the love and to the sexual affection in the marriage, um, I think that's a choice that she makes. And I'd like to have been, you know, I'd like to have been sure that, that was her choice. But but anyhow, it also slightly bugged me that Jack spoke out of turn and Stephen corrected him, and Jack immediately climbed down. Whereas <laughs> when Jack acted out of turn and Sophie called him out on it. He didn't back down and he threw it back at her. And uh, mm, yeah, his, Jack's friends get better conduct than his wife does. And I think that's that's not the image that I want to have of Jack. You, you know, it's it's interesting. Ian. It's not the image I want to have of Jack, but I, I have to say, I resemble that remark sometimes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes how polite I can be to people I have no idea of in a store and then realize, you know, I've been really rude to my own family here or, yeah, or somebody. True. So, and, and I think it's it's kind of in keeping with, for me, Ian, anyways, this was a real Rorschach test chapter. Yeah, you know, yeah. Ink I'm just amazed. <laughs> yeah, it's like those ink blots that your, you know, your therapist or something has you look at. What do you see here? Because, you know, I ha- can't tell you how many times in this chapter I was looking, like, going, I was having my own reactions to this chapter. You know, we we mentioned one earlier that Stephen's wondering how how women talk together, especially on this topic, and, and you know, I'm thinking it's so fascinating to me how. So often O'Brien brings out the way I think about something and I get very much like, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Stephen. Then I go, you know, all guys want to do it. Well, I don't know. Is it all guys or is it just me? Oh, maybe this is <laughs> this is me you know, reading into these ink blots here. And I think so many of the ideas in this chapter perhaps are what O'Brien thought were typical of the time. Yeah. But as you brought up, you know, I wonder kind of how many of them also are reflecting O'Brien's attitudes and beliefs. Right. And then how, you know, how we see ourselves and, and our kind of lives and inner lives in these stories and characters. It's one of the beauties of that, you know, his writing, you know, while firmly grounded in the times and these histories are also timeless. You know, yeah, absolutely. And there's this, you know, like you say, very, very real, very lifelike flowing together of chance and luck and the pull of kind of duty and obligation and the choices that we make about how we're going to, you know, how we're going to deal with the people who are around us and the people who love us. Ah, oh, it's such a great book of stories. It really is. So let's just look at the uh, situation with Stephen for a minute here. O'Brien has r- very deftly and very happily, as far as we're concerned, put Stephen's fortune back to rights. Things seem to be going great there. He's back with Diana. We've got the Bridget and Clarissa thing going on. The only unresolved domestic matter appeared to be this thing with Padine and the promised farm. And I, I was a little bit set back by the idea that, you know, maybe Padine's now got a thing for Clarissa. And I, I don't know what of that we're going to see in the future. So Stephen's great. And I love the fact that we got to wrap the chapter up and that you dug it out for us so brilliant there, Mike, the connection to Horace and Alexander Pope and how all of that the themes in those few verses of Alexander Pope are really the themes that are woven all the way through this book. Yeah. Character, fate, personal choice, philosophy, poverty, society, you know, all, all written in there, but we have to dig for them uh, and we can't take it for granted that we're going to get them served up on a, on a plate for us. It's really, really great stuff. Yeah, and, and I almost get the impression, Ian, that, you know, 
we've kind of very neatly handled all of that. And and we we kind of handled the domestic front. And I'm wondering if O'Brien is now kind of moving us back to the title of the book. You know, this last conversation between Stephen and Jack's very much about the yellow admiral. Yes, yeah. no. You know, what's the path forward? And it almost sounds like in Stephen's proposal there that Jack is tentatively glomming onto that, you know, maybe we have a, a little arc that sounds familiar, kind of like the, uh, you know, the reverse of the metal, kind of a, well, here's a way to work around that right now while you're not Navy or you might not be going straight naval route. Maybe a, a way that brings you back there. I don't know. Yeah. But but last time Jack Aubrey had a, a, an expedition to South America in view, it took him um, years and several books to get there. Um, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, we've got all kinds of other jeopardy being played out. But besides the fact that, you know, it's dangerous to ride on the top box of a carriage, we've also got there's there's bad weather, there's rocks and tides and shoals. We've had stories in the book already of shipwreck with really severe loss of life. We've got the clock ticking on the final countdown of the war of the Sixth Coalition and how's that all going to work out in the European context. There's all kinds of things going on that might provide a new twist to the story. And of course, Mike, we still got, what is it, three or maybe only two chapters to go. So O'Brien could squeeze the content of almost anybody else's novel into one of his chapters. So I don't think we can take it for granted that we know where this one's headed. No, no, no. I think as often, you know, there's only one thing for it. What do you say, Ian, next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, I should like that of all things. we do that and we'll be right back after this short break oh my gosh <laughs> just a quickie i mean just a short break <laughs> right 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 there you go ah. yeah we're, no mention of afternoon delight here nope, nope. No, indeed. that's not what we're talking about right